Welcome to All About Literacy. We've invited our friend and colleague, Joy Zomer, to this podcast episode to speak with us about adolescent literacy, particularly connected to serving students for whom school hasn't been easy. Joy currently works in Hamilton Community Schools in Hamilton, Michigan, where she is the principal of Pioneer Tech High School, as well as an English language arts teacher. She also works for Michigan Virtual as an online English instructor. Joy has lived and taught in the United States and abroad, including Hungary and Sicily. No matter where she works, she's always finding ways to connect her students' lives with their learning. One thing that makes Joy an exceptional educator is her staunch and unwavering commitment to her students and their success, not only as an administrator, but also as a teacher and mentor. Joy, welcome to the podcast. It's so great to have you. We're so glad you're here. Thank you, Erica and Deb. I appreciate it. That was very kind, a very kind introduction. For the next 20 minutes or so, Joy, Erica and I will take turns asking you some questions. How does that sound? Sounds great. All right. So let's start off with your work at the secondary level, both as an administrator and teacher. What literacy-related issues do you think adolescents find most challenging and why? I think this one is an interesting one. I have taught for about 20 years now. And I think one piece that phones and smartphones have done to our youth is really take away their access to professional communication. So I find oftentimes that just speaking about or looking at correcting the types of speech that they're using when they write emails or letters, writing a formal essay seems a bit unusual to some students. The use of first person is something that they commonly think is still normal because they do that all the time in their texts. So we work pretty hard at uh, building their capacity for professional communication and then having that respect that's needed to get that message out there in a way that'll actually get a response that they would want to hear. I think that's one big piece that we've seen change. I think another piece would be just language grows and changes all the time. Our kids seem to be missing some of the nuances that come with languages, language when you aren't reading books, but instead reading short pieces of text. I was thinking about this question, reflecting on TikTok and some of Instagram and Twitter and how that has gotten kids really well attuned to short spans of reading or writing, but it's a struggle to write a fully well thought out paragraph, for example, or use transition words as you write an essay. Those things just seem to be more uncomfortable for kids and challenging to know before they come into the classroom. I, I don't know. In my day and age, it was before that time period when we had smartphones. So I feel like we we worked on that a lot in school. And now it's something that I'm still teaching to 11th and 12th graders. Thanks, Joy. I think that's really helpful to just even to frame it in terms of what are the different kinds of reading and writing situations that are that current teenagers are experiencing and creating and participating in and how does that contrast? Sometimes it bridges easily, sometimes it doesn't with the kinds of things we're asking them to do in school, highlighting some of those really specific differences that you've seen over the years. Related to that, Joy, as you think about your work as administrator and as a teacher at the secondary level, what do you wish more teachers knew about in terms of supporting students in regards to the things that you just mentioned, but then also particularly students who might not thrive in traditional school settings? It's a good question. I think one element that I wish maybe we spent as teachers a little bit more time on was just encouraging 
reading and encouraging writing. I think we oftentimes shy away from it when a kid struggles because they're not very happy doing it. And it feels maybe really frustrating or difficult for some students. So we try to find alternative methods. I, I'm not speaking out against audiobooks or um, using movies. I'm not ag against that at all. But I think we have so much access to a variety of ways to teach literacy that we forget that we have all those things in our toolbox. Does that make sense at all? Yeah, absolutely. It does. Well, let me ask a follow-up question mm -hmm. for, for many of our pre-service teachers, not all definitely, but many of them have succeeded and flourished in traditional school setting. Mm -hmm. They, they get great grades and that's in part why they want to be teachers because they've had such a great experience in schools mm -hmm. over the years. Mm -hmm. It can be hard for some of our pre-service teachers, beginning teachers to relate or connect with or understand students who don't have those kinds of experiences in school. What advice would you have in that regard? Mm -hmm. I think a piece for me has become over the years looking at how do students get access to books and how do they get access to literacy, basically things that are that make them literate or also involve them in reading or writing. I, I think of a lot of my students that we've had young moms who come back to our building and we always have... Uh, kids or children's books available for them to take with them when they leave. That's been something that I added after being in the building a couple of years, realizing that maybe they're not reading at home to their kids. So I started buying books at some of our resale shops in town, thinking maybe we can add books into their environment. I have been shocked to realize that some of those kids have never even thought about putting books in front of their children at two and three years old. And that was something I, Deb, that you were mentioning that was normal in my childhood. Books were such a big part of my childhood. I have you know, authors that I loved to have read to me, but also that I read a lot of as a kid. And I would never think not to have had books in my life. But I think just recognizing that, that books aren't a part of every tradition or every culture or every family and people's willingness to engage in literature and in literacy tasks, I guess we would call them, has so much to do with the exposure that the parent has felt, the, the positive regard or negative regard they've felt about school. I think that kind of goes back to my, you, you have to try it and you have to expose a young person to reading just by putting it in front of them and finding something that is at the level that they feel comfortable reading. A book that I have super enjoyed watch play out in my classroom has been a long way down by Jason Reynolds. For those of you that don't know about it, he uses the different chapters or different sections of the book are different floors on an elevator. And that's where the title comes from a long way down. I have had five, five, six kids maybe read it since we've had it in the building and principally young men, but they identify with it and they are enjoying reading it so much because of the content of it, because the story, because they get pulled into the emotions of the main character as he has to make some big decisions going down this elevator. It has nothing to do with the literacy at all, but finding something that is at a level that makes you feel comfortable and that you want to keep reading and it doesn't overwhelm you. It's all about that scaffolding that kind of becomes a big part of literacy, right? You just 
step by step continue to encourage more reading because they're intrigued by the content. So for me, that's where I would say we need to start. Our young teachers, it's you reading young adult novels. If you're in the high school level, you reading as many picture books, et cetera, as you can when you're in the elementary level, like wherever it is you are in your level of teaching, you would just find what might be being read by your kids and make sure you know the storyline. Because if I didn't, if I had not read A Long Way Down, a lot of the literacy wouldn't have happened either because that scaffolding couldn't occur because that the student wouldn't have somebody to talk about the book with. And that's what they want to do. They want to talk about and think about and argue back and forth with me different points on the book because, because we both know the story. So it's super important to be reading yourself, I think, as a teacher as well. So Joy, I think that what I heard you say was there's a component about building relationships with students and connecting with them. And you can do that through shared texts. So whether that's with students who are also parents themselves and helping them connect with their own children through text or connecting um, with students around stories that they've read or that you have read together. And that, I think that hits the question I was going to ask you. And what I was, as I was listening to you, I realized, I don't think our listeners um, actually know where you teach or the communities of students that you get to serve. So I'm wondering, actually, would you be willing to describe your work and the students that you serve and how they how they end up choosing Pioneer Tech or how they end up getting directed to Pioneer Tech? Because some people would consider it an alternative setting, but I don't know that's necessarily the best way to describe it. So for listeners who are unfamiliar with Pioneer Tech High School, could you tell them a little bit about it and how you came to be there? Mm-hmm. Yep, Hamilton Community Schools decided about 12 years ago, that um, they were not meeting the needs of all of their students. And in that regard, they knew they needed to have some program that could be flexible. Students might be struggling with school because they were transient, they had additional needs, they became pregnant, or they needed to get a job because they needed to support a girlfriend, or they just had issues with the law or concerns that put them in a position where they were missing school. So the the program was initially intended to be, I think our first label for the program was to be a unique learning environment. And that's the one for me that's stuck because unique just means it's not traditional in my mind. Unique means that we we look at students uh, on an individual basis and have the space and time to do that. I'm not servicing hundreds of students. Our building right now that we have is a one-room schoolhouse. It used to actually be a store, a party store in this community, and it can house at its max about 50 people for it to have a seat for everybody. So in that regard, the program individualizes learning and it breaks it down into, we call them modules, but we basically break down a student's learning so they learn sequentially. So they're only learning or taking three courses at a time. And in that space, they learn it a little bit quicker or they work through it quicker so that they're still able to complete six courses in a semester, which is what the state requirement um, is for Michigan. So what we find is the program offers flexibility for students that have maybe struggled in the past to do more because it's student-facing as well. It's not teacher-centered, it's student-centered. And so students have access to 100% of the course when they start the course. 
We work really hard and have over the years to add tools to our toolbox. Some of those things are PBL projects, standards-based projects. Some of our curriculum uses inquiry-based projects. We also do things where I go off the grid. We've got a lot of standards for the state of Michigan for the Common Core. And a student might be better suited to use a longer text for a wider variety of standards. Or they might be better suited to have a variety of smaller or shorter texts for those same standards. So I think the whole goal of the program is to remain flexible and constantly differentiate our instruction so that students can be successful because they're finding things that interest them and um, challenge them to be their best selves in the classroom. That's so helpful, Joy. Thanks for talking about some of those specifics. And given what you have just shared, I'm wondering if you could share a success story of a student who uh, was motivated to learn in some of these atypical, perhaps you want to say, or unique ways as you described it. For sure. I think the challenge always is, Deb, (laughs) how do I describe just one? This kind of gets me all worked up because these students become so much more than just students for us. So I can think of one, COVID was a disaster (laughs) in education for many of us. I think students that pushed through COVID have shown a lot of commitment and resilience and determination when they didn't have teachers, when they were already struggling with their coursework, and then to just continue to go forward and, and push for success. I had, I can think of one student over the last couple of years who came to us from another district who had a child in their sophomore year, dropped out of school the junior year and was back for the senior year. And the senior year was the year that COVID hit in May or April. The baby or the child was about a year and a half and COVID hit and did not finish school that spring. It kind of, everything fell apart. But then you also have to think about the things that fall apart, housing and jobs, part-time jobs and part-time jobs or jobs of family members who were potentially supporting the student. And there were a number of factors that hit this student pretty hard. And you put on top of that, that you're still a mom. So the next year, then it would have been then the 13th year that student persevered and graduated Yeah, last year. And the challenge then for me was a second child was on the way. And so not only did that student succeed with being a mom and getting through it, but also being a a mom a second time over and getting through it. So it's just a reminder to me, the resilience that our students have, not just my students, our young people are so resilient. And we can't forget that they want to succeed, even though sometimes the behaviors that come about because of the because of the anxiety and the doubt that they have show up more often than the positives do it's in there you just can't give up you can't give up on them and if for listeners of course you can't see that we are furiously nodding our heads um, in agreement with what joy has just shared and that is true no matter what age we teach our mm-hmm. the intentions we ha- we have to be with and for our students And so given that, Joy, and the fact that you were talking about COVID and COVID's been certainly a challenge, what advice do you have for beginning teachers who are starting their careers either, you know, at the trail, hopefully at the tail end of a pandemic or in the middle of the pandemic, depending on where we're at, 
and moving forward, what would you say to beginning teachers? I think the one that is the most important to me, Erica, it's a good question. It is that you need to nurture your passion for young people, for children, for adults. You have to choose to nurture it. It isn't something that you are passionate and then it it just stays with you forever. You have to continue, I think, to work on it, but also to remember what about it makes you your best self. So that would be my advice. We get really wrapped up as teachers in our curriculum, in all of the requirements that are put on us as teachers, feeling overwhelmed ourselves by what the workload looks like. But at the end of the day, it goes back to your love for those kids. So that would be my thought. Sorry, not supposed to get emotional, but I'm not crying. You're crying. I actually have (laughs) tears in my eyes. I think another piece then I had was just don't start out too strong and then fade in your enthusiasm. So it can be very difficult to just think, oh, I love this. And then, oh my gosh, I hate it. I got to get out of this. Don't do that. Continue to give yourself pacing so you don't expect too much of yourself before you're ready to go on to that next stage or next step in your career. As a follow-up, Joy, how have you nurtured your passion over the years? Deb, I think it has been just staying in the same place. (laughs) This program for me has given me as an educator the chance to go beyond my content area. Literacy as a topic is very interesting, but literacy as a lifestyle I think is where we need to get to as people. It, I want my, my students to be thinkers and I want them to be reflective and I want them to think about the life and world that's around them. I want them to understand pers- different perspectives. All those pieces make it more of a lifestyle or a component of who we are. And I think keeping that front and center every day when I walk into the classroom is what nurtures me, that maybe I'll have a chance that day to help a student think a little deeper than what they had thought before or explore a topic that makes them uncomfortable or write something correctly that they've never written correctly before. Like just get better at at being their best self, that's that's just a beauty for me in being an educator. I just have to say, Joy, it's beautiful to hear how your passion comes through in the way you talk. You care deeply about your students, and that is evident not only in your interactions with them, but in how you tell and talk with them about to others. And so thank you for that gift on this podcast interview. I appreciate the chance to chat with both of you. I think We all love young people. And I think that's the beauty of of our craft. I'm going to switch gears for just a minute because a tradition at the end of our episodes, Joy, is to ask our guests a fun question. Mm -hmm. In our literacy courses, Erica and I talk about the importance of affirming, acknowledging, and drawing on students out of school literacy practices. And you've already mentioned many of them. And I know this is exactly what you do with your students. Thinking about hobbies or sports or cultural, religious or ethnic groups that they participate in. And and in many ways, it's helping students themselves, even ourselves, realize the ways that we are literate and the skills we have in all these different contexts 
Mm -hmm. Sometimes helping bridge those to what we're doing in school or make space for those in school. And so on that note, Joy, what's an out-of-school literacy practice that you enjoy? Oh, reading. I would say that when my, boy, the years when my children, my three children were in elementary school, I really got into reading children's books. Bill Pete is one of my favorite of all times, but I was missing uh, complex plot lines and the feeling when you read literature and you go, huh? huh? Did I really, did I get that? Okay. Let me read that again. Okay. Oh yeah. I understand that. That kind of thing. Like I think for me, that would be my greatest joy now is reading. And I, I do do some reviews on Goodreads where I can share what I thought. And that's been super productive for me because I don't think I've ever articulated what I thought about what I read before uh, besides a book report. You know what I'm saying? Like we do that all the time, but as a craft that I practice on my own, enjoying a very long novel and then trying to summarize it in four to six sentences has been a very enjoyable lifelong literacy task, Deb, over the past few years. So my book right now is, I think his name is More Tolls, The Lincoln Highway. Amazing. Like it has started out super interesting. So anybody needs a plug for a book, I would recommend him right now. Joy, thank you for joining us today on All About Literacy. For those of you listening in, thank you for joining us as well. Be sure to follow All About Literacy on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. We are Erica Hamilton and Deb Van Dynan wishing you beautiful adventures ahead as we keep learning all about literacy.